podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Wagon Wheel. I am your host, Jared Kimber. Uh, thank you for joining me. Spotify Green Room, if, if you want to join us for any of these live chats, you can. I put out the links usually on Twitter, but if you follow us on Spotify Green Room, you actually get the notification as well. We put them up on Instagram stories, and if you're a Patreon subscriber, uh, you have access to them via our Discord page. But huge thanks to everyone again for popping into this particular chat. We realize if you're following uh, the podcast on YouTube, we have not been... As diligent as we perhaps should have been with getting all the Wagon Wheel episodes up, but we're going to try and make sure that we get them on time and up as much as possible. Obviously, they're probably the most timely thing that we do. So uh, sorry about that if you're on YouTube and you're just like, dude, you're like eight episodes behind, but we will catch up and we'll work, we will work that one out. Huge shout out to all the supporters. Obviously, Manscaped, if you use the code REDINCA, all one word, you get 20% off Manscaped. And what better way to shave your testicles than with Manscaped? I mean, there may be other ways. I don't know. But well, there are other ways, aren't there? But they're not safe and they're not as good. Um, they're not as designed for the curvatures and the wrinkles. I don't really know how Manscaped do it, but they seem to do a very good job from what I can tell. Thanks again to Bodyline T-shirts as well. And just obviously to people who support us via Buy Me A Coffee, but most of all to our Patreon, you know, just huge thanks to them. This podcast is completely exists because of Patreon. Obviously, we're looking at getting more sponsors and doing more partnerships with other companies going forward. But at the moment, the reason that we're, we can afford to do a second podcast a week is because of Patreon. So because of that, we allow the Patreons, patrons from Patreon to ask the first questions on this if you go to the first class or above in a level of tiers there's also heaps of other things like we've got an ama going on and in the patreon window at the moment for higher level you get access to chats and you also get the podcast before they go public and also without ads let's start with satchmo who says if you could go back in time and watch any great innings live which would it be Ooh, there's a really interesting one that i read a lot about in I'm trying to think of the year. Was it 1907, 1908, when uh, Aubrey Faulkner made it a great 100? It was a big deal for a South African to make 100 in Australia. And everyone was like, actually, it might be a double 100. He made a double 100. And everyone was like, oh, this is awesome. How good is this guy? And Victor Trumper, almost like, it's almost like being at a music festival and watching someone do something great and going out and putting in an extra performance came out and just absolutely smoked him and they had this incredible relationship too where Aubrey Faulkner was obviously an incredible player and he bought a bat from Victor Trumper and he didn't know how to tell Victor Trumper that the bat he'd sold him wasn't particularly good and so eventually sort of went up to him and said look um you know Victor I'm, I'm really sorry but this bat is not the bat I was hoping it would be. And Victor Trump was like, oh, I'll have a go. Victor Trump took to the nets and hit everything out the middle and said, I think it's fine. I think you, you, that what you realize at that point is that Victor Trump was on another level to even other great players of his era. Um, so to be able to watch that would be incredible. There was a great innings that Leary Constantine played uh, for the West Indies against Middlesex at Lords, which is you know an incredibly famous innings. And in some ways, maybe changed the way that people thought about West Indies cricket. Uh, uh, I think it was before they were a test-playing nation as well, but I'm, I'm not sure. I, I couldn't be I'm completely sure of that 
about that. Those are two. There's also one that I've actually seen a lot of highlights of, but the uh, the double hundred that Garfield Sobers made for the World Eleven at the MCG. My dad was there that day, and the way he talks about it. But even looking at the highlights, I would have absolutely loved to be able to watch that particular innings. Um, so there's three off the top of my head. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any other great older ones. I suppose some of some of Bradman's innings as well, like. We see the highlights, and you can sort of piece together what he did. But it would have been—it would be great to be able to go back and watch him, and maybe even Hobbs as well, and try and work out exactly what they were doing that other batters of their eras weren't doing. Sandeep says Kagisa Rabada was brilliant in the second Test match versus New Zealand. Do you think he has reached his peak with the red ball, or can he get even better? Well, I, I find it really interesting, Sandeep, that because everyone's got so much better at bowling, Rabada's probably not getting the credit that he he deserves. Uh, you know, he's been incredible for a very, very long time. But even within his own team, you know, you've got Arik Nokia coming through. Um, uh, and and there's always, you know, another South African bowling talent sort of uh, who comes in, takes a bunch of wickets and disappears or something. There always seems to be a different story to him. And you've got Ngidi and Siplama um, there as well, who, um, uh, well, you know, I think Siplama's in. Very, very good test bowler. It'd be really interesting to see how he goes um, in, in the next part of his career. So it always feels to be another story around Rabada. But he's been bombing people for a very, very long time. I'm not sure if he's reaching a new peak. I think this is pretty much what he does. He takes wickets at an incredibly low rate. What I really want to see now is him with that bowling attack for a long time as they build it around it. He's got, he's got better spin back up than probably Dale Stane ever got. Um, he doesn't have the all-round um, uh, backup that that you know that Stain had, um, but but you do. I think what you do have at that point is certainly a trying to think of the best way of putting it. But I think what you you have at that point is we're really going to see how good he is over the next couple of years. We already know he's had one of the best starts of his career that any bowler ever has. I'm not sure that there's a new peak for him to get to, but it's really whether he can just maintain this for a long period of time or whether he's going to be, I suppose, more like a Waka Yunus bowler who had a great peak, um, uh, but then, you know, he can't maintain it because of his body, which is possible it could happen to Rabada as well. But I, I include Yunus, even though they're very different bowlers, in that they're both incredible when it comes to strike rates. And I, it's very hard to keep up a very low strike rate consistently. Although if you're going to do it, South Africa is the place to do it. And I think Dale Stane probably proves that quite well. Johnny says, um, can you explain why spin away from the bat is so much more effective than spin towards the bat in white ball cricket? Well, it's in all cricket, realistically. Um, the basic reason, and it's not just spin, it's also seam bowling as well, is that the ball is going away from your eye line. So uh, if, if it's pitching on off stump, and it's moving away, it's moving further away from you, which means that you're not as, I'm doing this for the video, that doesn't help because I've completely gone away from the microphone, but it means that your head can't get completely on top of the ball. When the ball's coming into you, more often than not, your head is completely on top of it unless you fall over a little bit, which is why um, they talk about that a lot. So in one case, the ball's coming into your eye line, and in the other case, it's going away from your eye line. I would say that is the basic thing. Well, I, you know, I, I don't, I haven't ever seen any great science on it, but I would sh assume that is the basic reason. Um, uh, and also, if you think about it from, if you've ever played a sport like tennis, when you play tennis, the ball comes back into you, it cramps up, but you don't miss it that often, right? When the ball swings away from you in tennis, you're more likely to miss it. And so I think there's something there uh, about that that probably plays for cricket as well. I've never had a look at the numbers of baseball, so I'm not exactly sure how they uh, go across. 
Ray says, Women's World Cup, can Australia, can anyone knock Australia off at the top? I'm thinking New Zealand or South Africa, hoping more. Um, uh, Ray is from South Africa. Um, and India can prove, uh, provide some fireworks. Well, New Zealand obviously beat Australia in the warm-up game. Uh, South Africa, if you look at the piece I did, Ray, you'll see that I, um, I had a look at the odds. South Africa's 14 to 1. They've been had the second best form. I think that the thought from the bookies is that their form is probably better than it should be because they haven't been beaten by Australia like everyone else has. They haven't played Australia um, in, in that run. Um, uh, and so we don't really know how good South Africa is. I think we're getting a really good idea of how good New Zealand is. It's a warm-up game, and you know I'm not worried about that. I make, I make a comparison to the uh, you know the Australian women's cricket team at the moment. It's a bit like the uh, you know USA basketball team. The men's team lost in the, some of their warm-ups before the Olympics. Um, you know those things happen. They were still by far the best team at the Olympics. I would expect the Australian women's team to still be the best team at this World Cup. That said, I think of recent times. I think maybe some of the other teams, because they've had the focus of the World Cup, have been a little bit more on it. But the Australian women are absolutely fantastic. I wouldn't expect them to lose, um, but it would take an incredible effort. And if I was going to put my money on anyone, if I was going to put my money on anyone, I'd put my money on South Africa because I think their odds are really good. <laughs> but, if I was gonna, you know, realistically, I think New Zealand might be the, uh, the sneaky one uh, to come through, not to mention India and England as well, which, you know, I think we're in a great place that, we have a legitimate World Cup where five teams can win it. And we also have Bangladesh, who have obviously improved a lot of recent times. West Indies have made a World Cup um, uh, semi-final, um, uh, sorry, final, um, and obviously the Pakistan team. I, I wish we had more teams. Um, and there's a new video actually coming out, uh, which will probably be out if, by the time you listen to this podcast, about the Sri Lankan women and, and what's happened with them. Irish women as well. Obviously, the Thai women are coming through more so in the T20 cricket. But it's a really, really exciting time for women's cricket. Sadly, I probably won't be able to see much of this tournament because uh, New Zealand hours don't really suit me in the UK, and I'll be covering Australia, Pakistan, and also um, England, West Indies. So uh, I probably won't see as much as I want, but um, I tried to get a couple of videos out um, early on, um, and hopefully if I can cover a little bit more of the game, I will. Uh, some of the games, I will. Christopher says, why do teams announce their lineup days in advance? Even if it's the smallest marginal gain, I really don't see why teams do it. Surely teams even announcing their batting order plays into opposition's hands. Christopher, you're uh, speaking to, I mean, no one who does analysis in cricket can get behind this. In T20 cricket, you almost never see it. And even when captains say it sometimes, it's never true. Like they've got, they've either, they've got it wrong or something changes between the time they've, they've said it and, and the next game. Uh, international teams doing this. It's, I think it's more almost like a road back to the old days. It's also in cricket, the journalists really, I don't know why this is the case. Why the, I've always said that the cricket 11 is slightly different than maybe the starting, uh, uh 11 in football or starting five in basketball or some other team sports. We're always so desperate to know who is in and out of the team. In some cases, I think they do it to stop the leaks of who is in the team. But I, from a tactical point of view, I'm with you. I, I've had a fight about this with an international cricketer recently where he was like, oh, but it's such a marginal game, blah, blah, blah. And I said, but it's a marginal game, right? Like not telling. I, I wrote about this with the Devin Conway um, a while back. And, and a lot of cricketers got in touch saying, oh, as if um, 
England hadn't done their research on Devon Conway. But the way that I put it was, if you say three or four days out, Devon Conway is definitely playing. It means that every time Jimmy Anderson or Stuart Broad or whoever the bowlers are in that particular game are doing their research, they're literally doing their research based on knowing he's going to play. That is hugely different than from doing your research on, let's say, seven or eight players, and you're not sure which six are going to be picked in the, in the top six, right? There's a big difference there. And if you've got a player playing his first game, any little advantage you can give him, I think, is ideal. Um, it didn't matter for Devin Conway, obviously. He did okay. Um, but... Yeah, I'm completely with you. I think I think it does sort of go back to the sort of, especially the traveling media, um, the way that it kind of works that cycle. But uh, I certainly would never work. I would never want to be part of a cricket team where we were telling the opposition who our eleven was going to be coming in. Um, I, I don't really see what the point is. Also, if you do make that decision and then the pitch is slightly different on the day, haven't you sort of you haven't painted yourself in? But it makes it look like you're making a panic decision where you're not really making a panic decision. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, that bothers me. <laughs> uh, Satchmo says, uh, does an all-time Australia test 11 need to include players who open the batting during their careers? Or would it not be better to simply pick the best six batters regardless of the position and tell two of them to open? Um, no, I think, I think if you're doing that, I, I think you, I, I it, there's a difference between saying, these are the best 11 players of all time. And for one country, that might be like 10 batters and one bowler, right? Um, you know, so if you look at Sri Lanka, it might be like Vass, Murali, um, and then a, a bunch of batters, right? Uh, that's a different thing. If you're picking the best 11, you specifically want to pick the best openers. So I think in that particular case, you would pick uh, great openers. Uh, and, you know, in Australia's case, that's not a problem. Uh, and then you say... Does an all-time West Indies eleven need to have a specialist spinner? I don't think it needs to have a specialist spinner uh, because uh, in that case, it's a little bit different. That said, Lance Gibbs is a very unlucky person to miss out on that. He once held the world record for the most wickets, uh, was an incredible player, um, you know, almost impossible to hit off the square. Is he in their best seven or eight bowlers? Probably not though, right? So I think in that particular case, it's a little bit different. Uh, because we also know that West Indies won a lot of test matches without a specialist spinner. Um, if they're a team that always picked a spinner automatically, I think that would be a harder sell. Uh, but in that particular case, I think it's fine. And as you say, um, Sobers is in there to bowl spin, although let's not pretend that Sobers' spin was anything like Lance Gibbs' spin. Uh, but Sobers was, you know, a very, very handy spinner. Um, James says, you've made allusions to the dis diminishing even. Uh, role of medium pace swing bowlers, Alex Bedsers, Bob Massey's Derek Pringles, Alderman. Uh, what's your video on Akshar Patel, a bowler who, by your analysis, has forgone flight in favor for angle, uh, crease pinning pace, uh, almost like a long limbed Derek Underwood? Yeah, without the, without the, um, uh, you know, with, with a different kind of advantage from the pitches. But yeah, that's fair. Um, so you're asking why medium paces um, couldn't use these sorts of skills. It's not that medium pacers couldn't use these kind of skills, but if a medium pacer can work that out, why can't a fast medium pacer work it out? Um, why can't a medium, uh, you know, a medium fast bowler or a fast medium or a fast bowler work those skills out? And I think that's the thing that is holding back um, medium paced bowlers specifically. I still think there's always going to be, well, I don't think there's always going to be a place for them, but I think there's a, long, a place for them in a long time when you see, you know, the skill of uh, Muhammad Abbas or, um, even, even, I suppose, Bhuvi Kumar, um, I'm trying to think, uh, Vernon Philander, the actual skill of those people is still better than the skill of, you know, players at the, at the other end. However, 
you know, we will get medium fast, fast medium bowlers who can do that. And Boovy might even be probably more towards that end already, right? Will who will have those same skills? And I think that we're already starting to see through slower balls and now through the wobble ball that faster bowlers are picking up skills in a rate that they didn't they didn't particularly have to. I wouldn't have thought that Showback or Sean Tate were particularly skillful bowlers. Steve Harmison, again, you know, there wasn't that they were they were unskillful bowlers and that they actually in some ways uh, had to learn other skills and were very good at, at certain things, but comparing them to very high-skilled, medium-paced bowlers, they probably weren't in the same league. I think now we're seeing more crossover. I mean, Jimmy Anderson's probably another crossover, you know. He's now medium-fast, but he did a lot of the highly skillful stuff is fast-medium, which means that the people who bowl between 75 and 85 miles an hour consistently, I think they're just going to struggle to get picked. I don't think that they'll struggle to pick up wickets of first-class cricket. Um and also, as we're seeing the Neil Wagner era of bouncing people in the middle overs, you cannot do that with someone bowling, you know, 78 miles an hour. You know, even Neil Wagner's pace is, you know, vastly superior to that. So um, it's a really good question, James. But I think that what what you're talking about, and I think you mentioned it further on, like the Colin Miller type, we might actually see people who do that, but then you're really talking more Mustafa Zaraman, Bob Appleyard. Those aren't medium paces really at that point. They're really fast spinners. That is something that I think we will see more of because I think it'll come through T20 cricket and then those skills should be able to be transferred to pace bowling. You know, with, you know, if you have a look at what Lance Klusner um, managed to do bowling cutters and we've seen some great, you know, bowlers bowling, you know, faster cutters in test matches at times. I think that's an underbolt skill. That might come through those medium pace guys, but eventually it will be taken over by the faster guys anyway. Uh, Ian says, is Chris Wokes the player under the most pressure going into the West Indies and England series this month? Yeah, I, absolutely. Um, he's using the Dukes ball. He's going up against a weak West Indian batting lineup on very friendly pitches. Uh, you know, if he comes back and he hasn't taken a good percentage of wickets per game at a decent average... I think they, that might be the end of the Chris Wokes bowls overseas experiment. Um, sadly, I still think his record is worse than it should be overseas. But it, but I think I might have done it, this in a recent video. I can't imagine that Chris Wokes is ever going to go on such a run in overseas cricket where he's ever going to be able to pull those numbers back. You know, what's the best case scenario? He plays for another three or four years and he ends up averaging between 35 and 40 overseas. England's still going to want more um, if they're going to win overseas. And I, I still believe that Chris Wokes is a fantastic cricketer and I don't understand why he's been so um, unsuccessful, but he has been. And at a certain point, I think we have to go with the fact that he hasn't been able to take wickets consistently overseas. Certainly if he doesn't take them in, these, in this environment um, of this next series, you'd have to be like, thanks, Chris. Uh, we love your batting. We love your fielding. We love you. Everyone loves Chris Wokes. But, you know, maybe time to move on. Thanks to everyone there for Patreon. That was great. There is a joke in cricket that we started protecting our testicles 100 years before we put on helmets. I'm not here to give you a history lesson on the cricket box and its invention, but this is a generally true statement. So that means as cricketers, we are more focused on protecting our downstairs than our head. And yet when so many of us shave our balls, we do it with a crude implement made for trimming a beard. Well, Manscaped are here to make sure, like the cricket box did 100 years ago, that our balls are completely looked after. Manscaped have the Lawnmower 4.0, a stunning device that trims your pubes like a delicate late cut. Well, without the actual cutting, I suppose. And I have used this, so you're going to have to trust me when I say this is a shockingly good piece of kit. And maybe this is for another time in the story, but a man who has injured himself down there and had to go to hospital to get to the whole area 
fixed. I'm glad that there's something that feels a lot safer. Huge thanks to Manscaped for making the Lawnmower 4.0 and also for giving us a discount code. So get 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code REDINCA at manscaped.com. Come on now, 20% off, free shipping. Manscaped.com, REDINCA, you get it. Thanks to the ICC regulations, you can no longer use saliva on your balls, but you can use Manscaped. Let's get some questions in the chat. Dio. Uh, hello, Jared. How you doing? What's your question? So I wanted to ask about Ashwin. I've been watching cricket since 2013. So I don't know about our previous spinners. I'm fr- obviously I'm from India. So I wanted to know how good Ashwin is actually to compare to our spinners. Um, uh, he's probably, I mean, to give you a proper answer, I'd have to really go through the numbers. I think he'd fi- I think he'd struggle to find a better spinner than Ashwin at home in a way over a long period of time. I think obviously Bisham Beatty was absolutely incredible. You look back to um, Chandra Seker when he was at his best was maybe even again, better than Ashwin away from home, but whether we saw that consistently or not, Anil Kumble certainly struggled away from home. Hush, um, uh, Habajan Singh again, struggled away from home. Anil Kumble is a, I think a world great. Um, I think, uh, Habishan's obviously an Indian great. I'm trying to think throughout the history of, of Indian spinners if there's, you know, been anyone else. Jadeja's obviously right up there now. Um, you know, Jadeja has a good case to be the, if not the best left-arm finger spinner of all time, then certainly in that conversation. Uh, but I think for me, off the top of my head, I would say that Ash is the best um Indian spinner that I have ever seen. And I think looking at the records, I would find it hard to think that anyone else has ever been better than him, but I'd have to, I'd have to do a really deep dive into that, but that would be my thought process. Um, I mean, things, weird things have happened as well because he's played in an era where there's been more left-handers and there's been DRS. What would some of the Indian spinners have done previously um, if they'd had, you know, better matchups to bowl against and the, um, and DRS to back that up with. Right. So we don't know that and we can't but if you're just looking based on era i just find it hard i mean i I saw him bowl in australia in was it 10 no 11 12 um and i just thought this you know and i'd seen harath bowl in australia and i'd seen murally bowl in australia and uh, i think swan had bowled in australia i just thought that he was ashwin was incredible then um on another level and i couldn't i was surprised me though in india just kept dropping him and he got dropped i think because of that 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 tour and i thought he bowled magnificently in australia on that tour and he didn't play much away from home after that and and i think that maybe stunted his development but also maybe it's also allowed him to have a slightly better record away from home right like when he was learning the game he didn't have to do as much work away from home as maybe some of the under indian spinners did certainly someone like Harvajan, who probably played a lot away from home early on in his career when he was still developing as a player but uh for me i would think that ashwin longevity um uh and and uh you know ability to bowl at home in a way is the best indian spinner i've i know of but without doing a deep dive i'm just going off the top of my head uh, okay thanks no worries thank you joseph matthew hi jared how you doing what's your question yeah i watched your uh, previous year of t20 11 i just wanted to know how what do you think will the indian spin quarter do if they were to play t20 cricket so you're talking about the, the quartet from the 60s and 70s? Yes, yes. 
Well, Chandrasekhar, I suppose, is maybe one of the closest bowlers to Rashid Khan. I suppose him, maybe Tiger Bill O'Reilly. There aren't that many. If, if you watch old clips of Clary Grimmett, you'd be shocked at how slow Clary Grimmett bowled, whereas Tiger Bill O'Reilly and Chandrasekhar are a lot quicker. So I would assume that with that, Chandrasekhar would be um, brilliant. Bisham Beatty, it would be really interesting to see how he would develop his game for T20. I don't think, I, I think, uh, who, who was it? Someone tweeted out a video of him. I know Simon Kerrigan, the England spinner, uh, retweeted it. And a couple of my spinning, you know, no, fellow nerds um, was sending it through to me when we were having a look at it. He bowled so slow. I would say he bowled considerably slower than uh, Nathan Lyon, for instance, which was obviously the you know quite common in, in that era of, of spin bowling. Unless you were the sort of faster bowl into the wet wickets type spinner, you did bowl quite slow. But had such control of the ball and the batter that I, I think he would have got away. But I'm, I don't know if there's a modern... Maybe we'd have to look at some of the su- success that Harath did. I don't think Harath was quite as good a bowler as, as Bisham Beatty, but very maybe on, on a similar level. And I think we saw at times Harath absolutely rip through um, T20, but we didn't probably see the most of him at T20. Most of the other left-arm finger spins we've seen have been sort of Imad Wazim types and, you know, Krunal Pandya types and even Jadeja um, type bowler. I don't think Beatty would have gone down that path. Um, but it'd be really interesting. It, it really would be interesting to see what he would have done. Who've we got? Venkat. I think Venkat, my memory was that he had a very low um, economy rate. I assume that he would probably be quite suited to limited overs cricket because of that and that people struggle to get him away. I know he attacked a lot in first-class cricket, took a lot of wickets in first-class cricket, but I would have thought in T20 cricket he would have been a stopper. And who am I missing? Who, I'm missing a, a spinner here, aren't I? Prasanna. Oh, Prasanna. I would have thought Prasanna would have been a bit more like Ashwin in that there would have maybe been a lot of experimentation and trying to find what he was best at. I would have thought that, yeah, that I, I don't know if he would have gone quite as far as Ashwin into the experimentation world, but I would have thought that Pasana would have, I thought I think he would have tried to remain to be a wicket-taking option, but while coming up with extravagant ways to occasionally keep the economy rate down. Yeah, he would have, he would have been very, very fascinating what he would have done with his lines, you know, from remembering the way that he bowled. But yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you know, that that was one of the things that how these different players would have, you know, you know so I picked Jim Foat for my fielder. But another player that I think would have been really, really interesting in T20 cricket would have been uh, West Indies' Roger Harper, uh, who was obviously like the West Indies' permanent 12th man, one of the best fielders, if not the best fielder in the world for a long period of time, uh, could bat a little bit and bowled sort of almost Johan Boto type off spin. It would have been a fantastic T20 cricketer. I think there's a lot of guys who played, who, who were successful in different eras of, of test cricket. It'll be interesting to see what they would have done. Uh, but thanks so much. Thank you, Dad. Are you? You there? Yep. Hey, Dad. How are you? Not too bad. What's your question? So my question is something that I noticed quite often is that right-arm bowlers don't often come around the wicket to left-arm batsmen or it's seen as a more of a defensive tactic after they're done with it, like with over the wicket and they're not able to get the wicket or the batsman is set. What format are you talking about here? Tests. I don't think ODIs uh, or T20s, they do that much either. But especially in tests, if I notice, and it reminds me of this test in India versus uh, South Africa when Bumrah was trying to come over the wicket continuously and trying to get that edge when he could have like tried his Yorker, which could have been difficult for the lower order batsman. 
but I remember Zain Khan used to do that a lot to uh, Graham Smith, where he used to come around the wicket and get him out a lot. So, uh, Zahi Khan's a left-arm bowler bowling around the wicket to a left-hand batter. That's completely different. I mean, yeah, I mean, if you could differentiate or help with that. Well, that's massively different. That's like a right-arm bowler coming around the wicket to a right-hand batter. Is that what you're talking about? Or a left-hand batter? No, uh, left-hand batter itself and a right-arm bowler. I know, I know, uh, Zahir yeah, yeah. is a left-arm bowler, but... So, I mean, in the last... Oh, I can't remember when it started, but uh, I wrote about this in 2019. Um, Sid has written about it. Katike has written about it. Uh, the basically from about 2017 onwards, bowlers went more than doubled the amount of times they bowled around the wicket to left-handers. It's completely changed. I'm really, I'm actually quite shocked you're asking this question because there's never been a time in the history of Test cricket when people have bowled around the wicket to left-handers more than they do now. It's massively so. Um, if you go back to 90s cricket, a couple of ba- uh, you know, a couple of bowlers um, uh, were specialists and liked to do it, and a couple of batters were seen as weak. Um, when you did that, but as a general rule, the only time you bowled around the wicket to a left-hander was when he'd already made 80 and you'd run out of options and you came around the wicket. Whereas now you've got Kima Roach, Stuart Broad. Um, I'm trying to think some of the other specialists, there's a couple of others who are absolute specialists coming around the wicket, um, to left-handers and, uh, almost never come over the wicket to right-handers, um, at all. I think Kima Roach at one stage was up to 87% of the time bowling around the wicket to left-handers for, for a period and was unplayable when he was doing it. Um, uh, the Australians are, are, are getting into it as well. Um, Bumrah has done it. Um, uh, I'm trying to think, is Siraj? Siraj has done it, although Siraj sometimes comes over the wicket as well. Um, but yeah, there's more of right-arm bowlers coming around the wicket to left-handers than there's ever been. Partly that's because there are more, there are less right-arm bowlers who take the ball away from a, right, a right-hander or take the ball into a left-hander now than ever before. And because of that, if you can take the ball away from a left-hander, the absolute best angle is to angle the ball in at them and take it away, a bit like a left-arm finger spinner bowling to a right-hander. So uh, we've never seen more. I'd say I've done a video on it, actually. I'd say that the reason we've seen more of it is because of analysis and because of coaching. So essentially what happened was analysts kept saying, this guy's not very good when you come around the wicket, but bowlers kept saying, well, I don't know how to do it. And I've had this before. I've had this conversation with a bowler before. And I said, it's not good enough to tell me you don't know how to do it. You've got a bowling coach there. It's your job to go. And so I, you know, linked him up with a bowling coach and then you help them um, actually develop that skill. So, um, yeah, it, it's huge um, the amount of times that we've seen it in, I would say, around 2017 was the, the first time. Okay. Uh, I'll keep a more uh, keen eye on it. No worries. Cheers, mate. Bye. Hydrogen X. Hey. Hey, doing Hydrogen X? How can I help you? So my question was that uh, basically in the uh, recently starting, it's uh, starting from I think 8th March, England West Indies series, uh, it's a practice match is going on. Johnny Bisto again scored a 100, I think. So uh, what do you think about the future of uh, wicket keepers of uh, England? Will they give their role to Johnny Bisto? What do you think about the wicket keeping of John? Uh, long term, I have no idea because, I mean, if everyone keeps failing to make runs, they're just going to keep rotating through people, aren't they? My guess is Josh Butler will not continue to play. That's just a guess. I think he, he might have even played his last test or he might play in England this summer. I don't know. But I wouldn't be massively surprised if Josh Butler moved away from test cricket. I think they're probably their first thought is to go back to Bairstow. 
Um, but obviously, um, folks is the other uh, the other option there. I think I just think that they believe probably rightly that Besto is a much better batter than than folks. Um, although folks has done quite well in Test cricket, you know, the majority of his runs have come down the order. Whereas Besto also gives them the option of playing someone higher up in the order if they need to. So my guess is that they would try and make it work with Besto, who, if you look at county cricket. I think is still the most dominant batter over the last five years or something, um, and by a long distance. Uh, so I would have assumed that they would go back to Besto first um, and and go with him, uh, but then you know maybe have folks as a specialist in in Asia, um, or if Besto is averaging low thirties or high twenties, they might just go with folks. I also think that Ben Fuchs is currently the best wicketkeeper that England has. But uh, when you play folks, you essentially have to play him at seven. And uh, recently, Ben Stokes has also not been pulling up that well. So if Ben Stokes doesn't return to his previous bowling, then how do you look at it? Well, now that they don't have Moen Ali or Ben Stokes, that does change things. I don't think they would be... Well, in certain environments, they might try folks at six. Whether they would do that consistently is fair, but also I doubt that Ben Stokes is ever not going to bowl consistently as well. So it might be a situation that doesn't flare up as much as you would think it would. But you're right. Um, in that case, then Bearstow makes more sense, and I, you know that's why that that's why Bearstow will be their first thought. Bearstow just gives them extra flexibility. Plus, you know, for everything that's going on in Bearstow's career. It would even if you say Bearstow is not good enough to play Test cricket and make runs consistently, which so far, you know, by his numbers is is correct. He might still be in England's best, what, five batters, four batters. Um, and if that's the case, it makes sense to squeeze him into the side with the gloves more so than folks who brings other problems. Thanks for your question, mate. Antas, you there? Hi, Jared. How you doing? What's your question? So I'm recently getting interested in cricket finances. And uh, I tried to look into it, but I don't understand. Like, I know how the BCCI and the other counterparts of it make money. But where does this money go apart from what they spend in building up the stadiums or whatever, paying salaries at the spending at grassroots levels? But are there any shareholders? I can't find any information. Who makes money off BCCI? Who gets rich? Great question. It's a very good question. I would like to understand it too. And I've been following this for 13 years. Uh, where does the money go? So much money seems to go in. So little money seems to come out. I mean, realistically, they could have 10 state-of-the-art training facilities for women, a fully professional women's setup with the money that they're getting and with the money that they're supposedly outlaying. And I don't know where the money goes. You know, I've heard you hear things like the BCCI sitting on um, cash of six to eight billion dollars. I don't know even if that's true, right? But where is all this money? They seem to be making so much money and I don't ever know where it goes. It's certainly not going on players' salaries. It's certainly not going on ground construction. It's certainly not going on training facilities. I think it's one of the great questions. Sadly, I don't. I think there's only about three or four cricket boards who actually really open up their finances um, in a professional way, and we just don't know where the money goes. But there's no shareholders. Uh, I would say that there are probably some uh, local boards who are getting more money than they should be. Um, but again, I don't. I don't know. It just feels like me. They make these billions and billions of dollars through the IPL and through their international cricket, and then. It disappears. And I don't know if they're sitting on this incredible reserve, which at this stage I don't think they need to. Like if let's say this if, if let's say that's true, and I have no idea whether it is or not, surely you just take a billion dollars and you 
you know, within two years have the best women's team that's ever existed, right? Not even, a, maybe 100 million, 50 million. Um, so, I, yeah, I'm with you. It doesn't make any sense when you look into the finances, but I think you'll find if you, if you, you know, if you're looking at India, I think you look at a lot of these boards. Zimbabwe, the Zimbabwe money thing is uh, t- terrifying. Um, there's a lot of places where money seems to go in and then we don't really know how it is spent. And I don't think that is fair to the cricket fans because we're the reasons these boards have money, right? We should know where our streaming, our ticket sales, our shirt sales, our, I don't know, however else we, we, you know, we, we buy our TV rights, all that sort of stuff we pay for. That's how they get rich. And then they don't show us. And I don't think that's good enough. Um, and I've never thought that's good enough, but you know, um, after a while, I probably just stopped looking. Uh, I just have one follow-up question. Mm-hmm. Do you have any information? Where can we watch Death of a Gentleman in India? I can't find it in, on any streaming platforms and such. Uh, well, Death of the Gentleman is, what year are we in? It's almost seven years old now. And as you can imagine, for most documentaries, they don't have a huge shelf life. So we had about four years on Netflix, maybe about four years on Amazon Prime. And when those contracts ran out, they decided not to re-up the documentary. Um, I think at that time, Amazon Prime were getting the test um, and uh, Netflix was getting the Mumbai documentary. So they probably thought that they had some cricket content coming through and they didn't need our, our tiny little documentary. As far as I'm aware now, you know, the only legal, well, I'm not even sure there's a legal way to watch it in India anymore, um, if we're being uh, completely honest. So I would assume now that the most, uh, the easiest way to watch it is probably through some sort of um, dark web. I, th- I think when, you, when you're going to the dark web to find your heroine, uh, at that stage, you should look for Death of a Gentleman as well. I'm not saying, Antas, you personally use heroin. But if you were to purchase heroin, it would be next to that. Thanks for your question, mate. William, you there? Yeah, hi, Jared. I am. What's your question, mate? So I read your piece on Jimmy and Broad getting booted in Test Team. People should subscribe to your Substack if they don't already. You're right. <laughs> Do you think that we, England, have got a, a chance in the West Indies? I think we'll lose, perhaps 2-1, but I don't know whether you would care to make a prediction in advance of the Test Series. I think England should still win that series, even without Jimmy and Broad. I understand why you They're would be bowling, though. Well, I, see, I, this is the thing. I don't think really on those pitches, the bowling attack that you're taking over should be able to take 20 wickets in a test match against on those pitches. Away Chris Wokes notwithstanding. Away Chris Wokes with a Duke's ball on helpful pitches is not away Chris Wokes in an Ashes test or in South Africa or in Asia, right? Like if, if he's ever going to take wickets away from home, it should be this test series. He should take yeah. 18 wickets in this series, right? And, and, and he may not, because as, as you've said, away Chris Wokes does weird things. And, you know, no one's ever liked to be um, in the UK more than Chris Wokes, apparently. But realistically, he should take wickets. Uh, Robinson should be unplayable. We've seen Mark Wood be good um, at times overseas. Uh, Sakib Mahmood, I th- think, would be a really good bowler against a West Indian bat- batting lineup on those sorts of pitches as well. We don't know what Parkinson will do, but we do know at times the West Indians, um, you know, have problems with wrist spin. Um, if he plays, um, of course. But you've also got to look at who are the West Indian batters that you're afraid of, right? I mean, it's been bad. I'm, in fact, when I finish this, the next thing I'm going to be doing is writing a, a piece up on, on West, um, batting in the West Indies. It's been terrible. They don't have really any locked-in batters. Um, if you remember last time, they beat England with their number six and seven. Um, Holder and Dowrich really, you know, uh, were a big part of 
um, why they won that particular series. Shy Hopes has been struggling against pace bowling. Um, he, you know, Hetmeyer probably won't play. Um, um, uh, Puran, they're probably not ready to take that punt on yet. Brathwaite. John Campbell you know, yeah. revival. I mean, the, the thing is that you might see someone like that. You know, Jermaine Blackwood will play, if he plays, will play one good innings because he always does against England. Um, man, the man is obsessed. But realistically, it's a bad batting lineup and the pitches are really spicy and you're using a Dukes ball, right? Realistically, England have a great chance of winning even without their best team. But, I mean, if I was an England fan, I'd probably, you know, prefer to have Jimmy and, and Broad go for this particular series because it, it's a bit like when you see this in baseball and basketball all the time when you're playing a team and you kind of want to rest your best players, but you're doing it against you're creating what should be a, let's say England with their best team is a 55% chance of winning this um, series, right? If you're not playing your best plays, is it closer to 50-50 now? Like you're making it more of a contest than it needs to be. And I think that's what England's doing. But I certainly think that with their bowling, they should be able to still win this series. But it's very possible that the England bowlers have an absolutely great series and they still lose because we already know that the West Indies bowlers will probably have a great series, and we know how England's batting goes. So it's very, very possible that that happens as well. I just think there's a certain irony that Broad and Anderson didn't play that much in the Ashes because we had to keep resting them, and then we just booted them at the end of the series, and they're not available <laughs> at all where we could use Say what you will, they're incredibly well-rested at the moment. Thanks for your question, mate. Dipesh? Uh, hi, hi. Uh, so my question is that, uh, so going ahead now, uh, I mean, it's a two-part question. So uh, first is going ahead uh, towards the T20 World Cup, Women's World Cup. Uh, mm. Who do you think are the favourites for the T20 Women's World Cup? And also the, the, the Pakistan versus Australia series is going to begin. And because everything is sceptical, nobody knows how the pitch is. <laughs> Even the Pakistanis, you know, they're not really open about it, how the pitch is going to behave or anything like that. So who, who are you bagging for uh, both these tournaments? I mean, one is the tournament and one is the series. You're talking about the Women's One Day World Cup that starts in 24 hours. Sorry, yes, yeah, sorry, one yeah, day earlier. Yeah. You said T20, and I was like, is he want, does he want me to throw ahead? Well, Women's World Cup, I mean, I don't think we've ever seen in a World Cup a team more favoured than the Australians. Uh, you know, I'd love to give you a hot take about how um, New Zealand or South Africa or England or India or, I don't know, West Indies or Pakistan were going to win that tournament. I just, I don't, I don't have it in me. I think there's a chance that one of them upsets Australia in the group games. Um and I also think it's a it's a chance that one of them you know um, gets lucky in in the knockouts. But realistically, uh, you'd have to be you'd have to have just bumped your head quite hard to think that anyone other than Australia would win. Uh, in Australia, Pakistan, as you said, the pitches we don't know. I when I did the world test my world chess championship, um, not pre uh, like preview where I had a look at who the most likely teams are based on the schedules to make the finals. I had Pakistan in um, the final and I had them winning this series, I think um, two, one um, certainly at least, you know, um, or, or even two nil. I can't, I'd have to go back and check. Uh, so I would be thinking that Pakistan should win that series. Australia have not been away from home in a very long time. And they're not being very good away from a home for a very long time. Um, so uh, you, I, I think just based on that, you would assume that Pakistan at home should be the better team. Having said that, you know, I think any time Australia has such a good bowling unit that uh, a bit like uh, South Africa is almost like the cheap version of Australia at the moment where you're just like, you, 
I, I think them winning series consistently would be really, really tough. But South Africa's going to win a lot of tests because their bowlers are going to just rip through teams. And I think Australia's is a bit similar. How that translates to Pakistan is obviously uh, a little bit trickier. But um, I do think that they have a chance of winning some tests. They might even win two of the tests. But I would think that Pakistan quite rightly deserve to be favourites. And I don't think I've seen anything. It's, there's no way I could give Australia the upper hand because they just we haven't seen them away from home in such a long time um, uh, in test matches. And so we really, you know, and, and winning that it would be impossible to say that they're going to beat Pakistan, um, but they could run them close. Thanks for your question. Got it, got it. More questions? Tom. How you doing, mate? I'm good. What's your question? So I was thinking the other day, you know, we, we're seeing a growth in franchise crickets. You know, we're seeing auctions coming through and people being a bit more choosy about the players they're, they're recruiting. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is going on behind the scenes and we're not privy to it. You see all these splashy releases about signing star players. But do you think we're going to see an increase in kind of money balling cricket and people saying, look, you know, we want openers who are capable of doing, you know, specific things rather than just being a flashy name who could come in and score hundreds. We want guys who can, you know, who can tick very specific boxes as part of a game plan. Look, we've already seen it. Um, you know, Benny Howe played in the PS- uh, B- um, Bangladesh Premier League PSL and is obviously on an IPL roster as well. You know, he's the unflashiest name um, in the world. Uh, you know, so much so that it held him back for a long time. I think that there is certainly still... It, so even if you've got Moneyball, right? So we had a situation at St. Lucia where we wanted a left-hander for the middle order and I came up with a lot of different options. And then David Warner became available. Now, we knew that David Warner was going to open the batting. Moneyball or not, I could tell you that that was going to cause a huge problem for us because we already had too many openers. But when you go back to the owner, you know, it's David Warner, right? And and also, on a Moneyball perspective, if I was to go through the numbers, it'd be like, Probably David Warner could have batted at three or four, which in fact he ended up batting at four for us hilariously, um, which shows how bad our season went. But so, you know, there, there are a lot of owners. You've got to remember at the moment too, American sports is, was at a much more mature stage when Moneyball took over, you know, basketball and baseball and now the NFL as well. You know, all those three sports were very, very mature. People who own those teams, some people still own them as an addition but a lot of people own them to get more capital to buy more teams, right? So, you know, you have people buy teams in America that, so they can buy Premier League and eventually so they can buy IPL teams. And, uh, you know, you, you have someone like the Cronkies who, you know, own a, a, a different team in a different city for a different sport over and over again, right? You get these sorts of things happen. They're trying to build equity in their teams. And so they're trying to make their teams more successful. And then you even get owners in America like, you know, the owners of uh, what the Dallas Cowboys or the LA Lakers who... Like, that's almost their entire business, right, at this point, is owning sports teams. We haven't had anything really that close to that in T20 franchises. You do get some people, like, I suppose Rajasthan might be one of the closest, where the owners were, they were they were getting it as a business. But a lot of the people who own these teams are owning them as what, what I call, they're almost hobby teams, right? So when I worked in the, in, in St. Lucia and CPL, it's quite clear that a lot of the owners didn't really care that much. They just wanted a couple of weeks in the West Indies um, and they weren't really thinking about the long-term aspects of it. They could take their clients, you know, to St. Lucia or Barbados or wherever um, and have a good time of it. That You see that in a lot of the leagues. And so while we still have that with the ownership, 
Um, you're going to probably lean towards more fame. Most of my time doing analysis when I'm talking to owners is talking them down from the most famous player um, again and again. That said, you're also getting a few people coming through who own teams who do understand finances and understand that what has happened in American sports and, and also in, in football and, and realize that this is something that they can do. And it is happening. The biggest difference is that in a lot of those sports, we have a lot more access to a lot of the data or we have a lot more data to begin with. So, you know, if you play 30 to 35 T20 games a year, that's quite a lot of T20 cricket to play in one year. Whereas obviously in baseball, you're looking at 160 and in basketball, you're looking at um, 82, right? So you're looking at a big difference straight away in the amount of data that we can collect. Then we then have the fact that outside of Crickviz, no one really, or very few people have access to Hawkeye data, right? That gives you a ball by ball data, the sort of stuff that I use a lot is really, really great. And it does incredible things. Hawkeye data is the next level up, right? And it really is a huge step up. And, you know, it, you can see with some of the videos uh, where, I, you know, the Akshar Patel video, and I did something on the slower balls of, of bowlers, the level of detail and the information that we have there, that is what owners really should be using more than the ball by ball data. You can match that with the ball by ball data, of course. Um, the ball by ball data is always going to be very, very um, important. But then to be able to get the next level and really understand why this person is successful and where they're successful would then help you work out if they're going to be successful in your franchise or your league. Um, and that information is still not that widely available. And while it's not that widely available, we go with ball by ball data. And ball by ball data can be but put it this way, I don't think anyone in the world in the last five years has faced 200 balls of left arm fingers of wrist spin, right? I don't know if anyone's faced 150 or even 100. I'm trying to remember the number. I know I did it in a video not that long ago, maybe the Ben Dunk video. No one faces it, right? And so we know that left arm wrist spin has an advantage, but we don't know who it has an advantage over, <laughs> right? So you might pick a left arm wrist spinner and you might play them in the first game and that team absolutely hammers them. And you had no idea because no one had ever faced enough balls for you to have a good thing. So those sorts of things make it a lot harder for us in, um, in cricket to be able to use that sort of stuff. But your basic point is right. And it is, it is happening, mate. It's just probably not happening at the rate that, you know, um, it, it should be happening. Um, and it's also, it's being held back a little bit. Very good. Trick. Thanks, mate. No, worries. thanks for your question. Baska. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. So I, uh, you, you talked about the Pakistan series and what the odds are stacking up. Uh, but uh, looking at uh, Australia, what do you think uh, will maximize the chances of winning the match with their three-piece bowlers, or they should go and give Swepshin a debut because uh, Pakistan pitches and leg spin, we know that nobody plays them that well. So would you be going with a, for a leg spinner, being a leg spinner yourself? And then if that, then how would you change the team combination? Look, I, I think that is really pitch dependent, isn't it? Like, I can't answer that for you now just because you haven't seen the pitches yet. We, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. I'd be shocked if Swepson didn't play a test uh, because they have, I was almost going to say Bancroft, um, uh, but not Bancroft, but because they have now a bowling all-rounder um, in the middle overs, I think that, sorry, in the, in the middle order, uh, who bowls seam, I think that gives them the option to do that. And you would assume that probably one of Hazelwood or Stark would miss out. If if it's only one test, 
again, you probably have to look at the pitch and work out if you think there's going to be any movement um, in, in off the pitch, probably Hazelwood misses out. Uh, if you think it's going to be quite a flat pitch, but um, the ball might rough up, then obviously maybe uh, Mitchell Stark is your better option of of missing out there. Um, but because they do have that, you know, that middle uh, that middle uh, order backup, then I could see them doing that. I'm not sure that's going to be Plan A though. I think Plan A is probably going to be going in with their four best bowlers and their all rounder. But uh, I, to, to be honest, I've been. I haven't really um, been chatting to the team much at all, so I don't really know what their thoughts are. But my last conversation was it felt like they were a little bit not confused but a little bit um unsure of exactly what they were going to come and come up against and i think someone was talking about that before i think that's pretty much how we've seen this series so far yeah so the thing is it because australia as you said was have has not done well uh, in, like not you said they have not done well overseas wouldn't it be like like with langer going and uh, McDonald coming in, wouldn't there there'll be some radical thinking uh, coming in, or is they just like they will just go with Cummins and have a steady lineup? Well, so traditionally Australia would throw in a second spinner. So the radical thinking usually would be to go with your normal bowling lineup. That would be the more radical thing. Australia can usually just throws in a second spinner, even if that second spinner isn't particularly good enough. So the more radical thing really is to go with their normal bowling lineup. I don't know. I, I as I said, I'm. I haven't been chatting to anyone. If I was on the tour, you know, you bump into people and you, you you chat a bit more. And honestly, I've been half expecting Australia just to pull out at the last minute anyway because that's kind of what they do. So I haven't been focusing on it as much. So I haven't been talking to anyone over there. But my guess is I would have thought that they, they're de facto in this particular situation, being that Pakistan pitches aren't the same as Indian or Sri Lankan or, or the UAE, they might go in with the extra seamers um, uh, based, on, based on the fact that they have a five-man attack and so it's not like their three seamers should be worked completely to the bone but i don't know is the best answer but thanks for your questions all right last question is from shamana hi so could you tell me how the icc rankings work really <laughs> sorry yeah especially the t20 rankings because um virat Kohli, i think just exited the rankings and uh, I guess Aaron Finch has been there since forever. And also Owen Morgan, he's there's something called an all-time ranking. Mm. Owen Morgan is on there and I think McCullum is on there. So what is that? What ranking is that? I'll start with all-time ranking. All-time ranking is your peak score. So you get ranked based on your individual score at any one time. And the all-time rankings, from my memory, I haven't been on 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 because uh, I, I, the rankings are nonsense, so I don't care about them. But my memory is that they're from your absolute peak score, so when you have your highest score. Uh, the reason that the rankings are nonsense in T20 cricket specifically is because they don't fully account for um, strike rate in the way that strike rate actually impacts T20 games. Also. No one plays enough T20 internationals. And when you do, you very rarely go up against full-strength teams because everyone's resting and rotating or trying new players. Um, there isn't enough T20 games. So Dawood Milan was the world's number one ranked T20 batter, and he played like 19 games. How can you be the best at the world at something if you've only done it 19 times? It's ridiculous. Uh, and if you would have if you would have used his domestic numbers, he probably wouldn't have been in the top 25 players in the world, or 25 batters in the world. Um so it's quite a, I don't know if, uh, I don't know if the best way to say it is it's an old model. It's a bit like DLS in the DLS doesn't particularly well work very well for T20 cricket either. And I think that's certainly the case with the rankings, but even the one day rankings, they tend to focus more on, um, 
averages and runs than they do on strike rate, which doesn't make sense because it really is the combination of the two that gives you the biggest impact. Separate to that, they're very bad for the all-rounders as well. You, you, you get like, well, these days Mitchell Stark deserves being in the all-rounders list maybe in test matches. But like even five, six years ago when Mitchell Stark wasn't a very good batter, he'd be like the fifth best test all-rounder in the world. And you'd be like, well, he's, he's clear, quite clearly not. Australia's batting him at nine. Um, so I think with that, you certainly have uh, situations where you've got to remember it doesn't matter. The two things that people seem to get really upset about when it comes to the ICC are the rankings and the um, player of the match. They're both entirely meaningless, right? There are 22 players who play in a cricket game and three of them could have the absolute best game of their life and only one of them gets man of the match or player of the match. And then the next game, no one has that particularly good a game, but someone's okay and they get it. It's it's a completely meaningless thing, and yet people completely fixate it. And the same with these rankings. I remember looking at the all-time ODI rankings um, of batting. I think David Gower was really high up on that list. David Gower had a pretty ordinary ODI record. He was fine for an 80s player. He's certainly not in one of the best players of all time, but he happened to go on a, on a period where I think he smashed the Australians ever, everywhere. I think it was the Australians. Um, over a few games, and obviously he got this incredibly high ranking. He's obviously not in the best um, ODI players of all time. Um, he's probably not even in England's best ODI players of all time. Um, he struggled to get in the top 15 of their best ever team. So it's a very, very flawed system. It doesn't use advanced metrics at all, as far as I'm aware, and it's a very old-fashioned way of looking at players. Um uh, even even to the point of which I would say that the actual rankings for test matches one day is, and um, T20s, w- when you look at teams, is quite flawed as well. We know it's harder to win away from home than at home, but there's nothing within the system to be able to do that. Consistently, when it came to rankings as well, you would get the same amount of points that you uh, for a dead rubber ODI at the end of a seven-match series where the other team was already 6-0 up as you would for winning a World Cup final. They're not equal difficulty. Um, so I certainly think that the rankings needs to be upended, um, but I don't care enough to make a point about it. Does that, does that make sense? Um, if you go back to, I, I did do a video on Dawid Milan. It is worth having a look at it. Yeah. So, I mean, I, in that I talk about it, that's about the most you'll ever hear me talk about it. Look, I, I don't know Dawid Milan, but I love Tabri Shamsi and, you know, he's been on my podcast before and, you know, uh, it seems like a really, really lovely guy. I don't want to make fun of the fact that he's the number one ranked T20 bowler in the world. But if he's the number one ranked T20 bowler in the world, he would be a first choice, um, a first choice uh, IPL bowler, right? And he's not. And that doesn't. Say, that's not to say he's rubbish, but it tells you what that the rankings are kind of bullshit. Is maybe the best word to use. <laughs> so how the ICC rankings work? They don't. I would say they don't. Yeah, I, I think I've never gone through them just because I have had like brief looks at them before. I know for a fact that the T20 model is terrible. I know for a fact that the one day model is quite poor. I've got a feeling that Alistair Cook's got a really high ranking on the all time one day list as well. And I remember I might have tweeted that once. He might have had like a similar ranking to like Herschel Gibbs. No one in the world thought Alistair Cook was a better one day player than Herschel Gibbs. So it's very flawed. I haven't looked at the bowlers ones as much, but I certainly have of the batting. The bowling one might actually be better. But it doesn't fact also it doesn't factor in what period of the game that you do things, right? So it's automatically 
it's automatically going to favor top order batters in in T20 cricket and one day cricket over middle order batters because of the way that the game moves. And that's, again, nonsensical. The same, it's probably going to, my guess is that it favors bowlers in T20 cricket who bowl in the middle overs because it's always the spinners who are the, the most highly ranked. Whereas Shaheen Afridi, you know, other than Rashid Khan, Shaheen Afridi might be the, the second best um or him and him and Boomer might be. Oh, he's probably even a better power play bowler than Boomer. Sheena Free might be the second best bowler in the world. I don't think he, he he's ever been number one in the T Twenty bowling rankings. I could be wrong. Um, so again, it doesn't really make any sense to me. But I, it doesn't matter because it's like it's got no consequence. That it's all it it only exists so that people can moan about it. So there'll be more articles about it. Right, it's not a real thing. If they were really to do it properly, I would probably moan about it more myself. You know, I get involved, but they don't care about it, um, and so it's it's just it's nice when the player, especially when it's a, a random player, gets to go to the top. Because I do think you know, for someone like Tabray Shamsi, who didn't always get pushed in South Africa cricket and struggled to get the major franchise jobs that he probably should have got, I think it's a really cool thing for him to do and also for someone like David Milan who was a late bloomer explodes at the international level far better than he ever did at domestic level like what a what a moment it is for people like that but so neither of them are Rashid Khan and you know AB de Villiers are better than them um AB de Villiers doesn't play international cricket so he's not the number one ranking and Rashid Khan um didn't have that international numbers um to compare to um to Tabray Shamsi um at that time or oh who who's who was it after Shamsi wasn't it it was um uh Hasaranga after him fine bowlers but if they're really the best bowlers in the world they would have played a lot more IPL by this point and I think you know I I remember in fact you know that the the Punjab fans going nuts about oh we've got the world's number one batter on the bench so if he was really world number one batter, he wouldn't be on the bench, right? Um, unless he was going through a dip. So yeah, it's uh, it's they're not for me. It's maybe the best way of putting it. Oh, thanks. No worries. Thanks so much for your question. So I'm going to have to leave because I've got to go do something now. But thanks to everyone who asked some questions. Obviously, a huge shout out again to the sponsors, Manscaped, 20% off if you put in the code REDINCA when you're at checkout there. You get free worldwide shipping. You don't have to get the... Um, Lawnmower 4.0. You, you perhaps you could get something that a T-shirt that says Manscape, the testicle perfume that they sell. They probably don't call it testicle perfume, do they? But whatever they call it, it's like I don't know. It's got another name. Sorry, Manscaped. It's it smells lovely. My producer Muku tells me it's the nicest smelling thing he's ever um, used on his body. That might say more about Muku than anything else, if we're being completely honest. But big shout out to them. Bodyline T-shirts as, as well. Also the Buy Me a Coffee crowd and specifically a Patreon. As I said before, this podcast exists because of Patreon. If we can get to our stretch goals on Patreon, what we would look at doing is bringing in a third podcast. We're obviously talking to advertisers and partners about that as well. But at the moment, you know, there's absolutely nothing stopping me doing a third podcast other than the fact that uh, we need the money. <laughs> but thank you so much to everyone who came into Spotify Green Room. Remember, if you come into Spotify Green Room, you can get notifications by following me directly there, and then you'll be told whenever we do them. But we do send them out on other places as well. But thanks to everyone for coming into this podcast and everyone who listened to it on the Reading Inca feed and also on YouTube. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.